I was born on the 12th of January 1971, first born. My mother had had a difficult pregnancy with me, high blood pressure, toxemia, a drug labour. She told me she couldn't even remember the birth. I was pushed out into the cold world a skinny baby, but despite my weight and my looks, I was strong and began to thrive quickly, climbing out of my cot at six months and beginning to walk at nine. After my first two months, my mother was pregnant again. With her second pregnancy came the exact same problems. Two weeks ago when I was brought into Ireland to rest and so I went in after Christmas, Christmas, St. Stephen's Day. So I was there for a couple of days and on the 29th they decided the blood pressure was still high to induce me. So induced but very quiet around and remember having the pains and the one nurse came and examined me. Oh, you'll be there for hours yet, turn in there. That was her attitude to me. So it was all completely even new, just like a first birth to me, because as I said, I didn't really, I didn't remember the first pregnancy. So it was someone in the ward with me said, you better call the nurse, I think you're high into labour. This went, this was only shortly after the nurse telling me to turn in. And um, they called, we called the nurse and actually, and I in the bed, the pushing pains came for the baby to be born and they lifted me into a wheelchair, told me, don't push, hold on, hold on, run down wheelchair. For up, actually, threw me onto a, a table in the labour ward, and within a second, he was born. Two winter babies at opposite ends of the same year, brother and sister so near to each other. When my little brother came home, what did he look like? What did people see? How long was it before you began to realise that something was wrong? Took him home and got on with life. And but slowly, I knew he wasn't. Things weren't right when he. He wasn't. He was cross enough, like uneasy. And then when it came to the normal, even to at the three months to hold the head up, he wasn't doing it. Would flop down. Same came when time went by in six months, nine months, he wasn't doing what he should be doing. I mentioned to the doctor, go maybe. I said, oh, all children are different. He'll develop in his own time. So it went on like that, with worry in the back of my mind and my husband's mind. Something he's different. And the other child was way advanced. And but they were together and they were. I didn't didn't worry too much about him, like you know. But then, uh, about a year, year and a half anyway, and definitely he wasn't walking. He was only maybe just about to stand up at that stage. And um, he was a, come then about two years of age, we went to, there was no check-up clinics then like they are now that you go every few months, like, and he was about two, just over the two when I had an appointment. And I was glad myself to be going with him because I knew, still knew he wasn't right. At that stage, he was only saying a few words, you'd call him baby words, and he was nearly two like dad or mam or gran or short words. Then there were the long trips from Waterford to Crumlin Hospital. The confusion, the conflicting reports. He's fine. That child is mentally handicapped. Going to be a slow learner. Water on the brain, perhaps. Lack of oxygen at birth. My parents were bewildered. They had no previous experience of a mental handicap. With David, they were never given a cause an explanation, or any advice on what to do or how to cope. They had only hope and ignorance, and a final report which said that David was on the borderline. His mind was an ill-defined territory. So my mother brought him home 
bundled in her own love and hope. I didn't look at him and see him as something weird or something wrong. He was still nice to look and lovely. He could hear and he could do little things. and You know, he wasn't, I suppose maybe as the doctor said, he wasn't a bad case. That wasn't the word he used. But myself, I still didn't reject him. I still didn't think, oh, God, mental handicap was a terrible thing. I still looked at the good side, that maybe he's slow, he'll, all these things will come to him. I wish I had had the same faith, the same patience, but I have snapshots of a different type of memory. It's always shadows and light when I think back to when we were very young children, sitting in the front garden, on the gate step, the gate locked, mid-afternoon. The sun shining so brilliantly that I really had to squint my eyes to see our little patch of a garden. Almost everything became invisible to me from its strong, glinting glare. Strong sunshine, it seems, always gives a strange clarity to sound. The air is thick and heavy, everything is still and noises seem magnified. I could hear the air sitting on me. The cars on the main road gave off a distant noise that sounded like waves crashing. I imagined then, as even now I sometimes do, that they were really waves. I was not sitting in a locked patch of a garden. I was at the seaside. I was sitting in that locked patch, and I was minding my brother David. My mother was expecting a new baby. I was on my summer holidays, so while she rested, I had to look after David. The sun shone warm and yellow, casting a mid-afternoon shadow across the garden. I grew hotter and seethed with envy. Envy for everyone else who was seven but not me. Envy for everyone who had gone to the beach that day. Envy for everyone who had proper friends, not a brother who couldn't talk properly to you. A brother who wasn't able to understand the games you wanted to play. Shadows crept across the garden as evening came. The stillness melted as the street outside became noisier. My mother would get up soon. We'd make the tea. I'd be able to call my friends. Things wouldn't be so bad. Then David began to kick the gate. Look at David, da da David, ga ga gabbit. Look at David, da da David, ga ga gabbit. Look at David, da da David, ga ga gabbit. What's wrong with you, David? David, say your name. Say it properly. What are you laughing for? <laughs> he doesn't even know why he's laughing. And then they turn to me. Why don't you come out and play in the road anyway? Your brother's like a little baby. What's wrong with him? Why does he talk like a baby? Da 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 It was probably only two or three who teased us. A lot of them were just confused. How could David look the same, yet be so different? Looking back now, it's strange to think how the difference could be so obvious between children of six and seven. But the worst thing was my own disgust for David and anger towards my parents. Why did I have to take care of him? In the eternal children's wail, it wasn't fair. David had no fear of water or cars, no conception of timing or anything like that. Right, uh, several times now where we were in a, a square, like, uh, it was all right when the, the local people were there, like, they would understand, but if a stranger a few times 
came up to visit any other people in the area, especially with a car like, where they just take the bend and only stopping a few feet away from it. it. Happened twice or three times, like, you know. So we had to be very, very careful about leaving him out on the road and all that type of thing. Like, he was, it was more or less done under supervision. He was never very good at roads. I remember even being out playing with the others when he, when he was young and his cousins and they were on the road. Next thing you know, everything came to a standstill. He had run out under a car. He was playing and he was no way was he conscious of hearing or that was a difference. That Gino, when traffic had come, but he didn't and he ran under a car. And after that, I got such a fright. I don't think I... He went out again on roads as such, like to play. It wasn't only my parents' fear of David playing on the road. No, my brother broke through all notions of convention, fear, danger. At Tremor Amusements, he tried to walk out of a bumper car while it was going. Wandering at the colour, he placed his hand on a red-hot poker. At Woodstown Beach, he would try to run through the water until it seemed he wanted the sea to swallow him completely. So everything was done under supervision. Although it was an unwanted weight of responsibility, I often became my brother's keeper. But I didn't want to understand that he needed more care and patience. I wanted to be free, to be with the children on the other side of the gate. At that time, David was just stupid to me. And because I was his sister, always with him, I too became associated in their minds with David. I wasn't treated like everyone else either. I was like him. And at seven, I almost hated him for that. I, I quite understood that, that David wouldn't be um, primary school material, like mixing with the other boys, like had to come to terms with that, which was hard at the time, because it's hard for anybody to um, say that his son is handicapped. And he looked great. You know, uh, all the early photographs of him, like, you know, or anything that would bear that out, like, that he looked great and everything, but that little thing was there, like, you know. So he went down to school, he was still in nappies now, training him in nappies now at that time. That was even four and a half to five years of age, like. I remember that again. David's first day at school. It's more shadows this time. The school just seemed a blur of wooden beams, knocked down walls. It was very dark. Just a white light shining through some large old windows. The teacher bundled David into her arms. He had his favourite clothes on that day. A denim suit with a large capital D embroidered at the end of each leg. I thought they were the coolest. David was crying and crying. The teacher told us to go. It was the best thing for him. And I remember my mother was crying as well. Unlike most schools, St Joseph's didn't aim to gear its pupils towards exams. David was taught basic reading, maths, PE, arts and crafts. He was really taught how to try to communicate more effectively with others, how brightly coloured round pegs must fit into round holes. The school moved from its old tenement building and David sat in a large bright classroom with crayon pictures on the wall and 20 other children surrounding him. So he was progressing on slowly, like, you know, but uh, he would have an awful lot of... Um, complaints like little fads he never copied anything good 
was always copied something that was bad like and over the years up to the time he nearly left at 18 years of age uh, he had all different mannerisms the whole time like uh, somebody be rocking he'd imitate him uh, another boy thought Bono was the devil that was a big thing with David he saw Bono was the devil even though he didn't know who Bono was like you know several things Julianne died then another little girl just to do something else then she'd do something completely different and he would imitate that he'd never imitated a good habit like you know it was always a, a bad habit from somebody else like you know I just a year older began to hear stories of how the Bronze Age people created the most beautiful decorations on jewellery. I realised just how large the stars in the sky really are. I was taught all the principal cities in Ireland and the rivers that flow through them. I read how in France tiny worms are bred to produce silk. I chanted Irish with my class. I read all of Enid Blyton and longed for adventures and midnight feasts. My whole world was opening up from that lock patch of a garden. History, geography, stories offered me a new perspective of the world. I began to realise all the places that had to be seen, all the adventures that had to happen and all the things that had happened before me. David fumbled over the words of a Peter and Jane book. What's two plus three, David? Speak clearly. Nobody can understand you. Read it on your own and stop tormenting Mammy. David thought Bono was the devil. Don't be so silly. You know that's nonsense. David couldn't dress himself properly. Look at your little sister. She'll be passing you out soon. While David stumbled over words, I began to think in a completely different language. Blonde hair, blue eyes, brown skin. Such a pretty boy. If he could be pushed just a little bit. What does he look like? Save flesh, save womb. What happened? Why was he picked? What makes another mind so much more articulate? What does he think about when he stares for an age in an empty space on a wall? How does he see the world without knowing how it's made? What's outside this town? What happened in a time he can't understand? Have his eyes no expression? Human eyes, that's all you need. To move a space beyond your vacant eyes. Adolescence, 12 going on 13, 13 going on 14, a time of betwixt and between. Not child nor man, neither woman nor girl, your body a clock ticking, ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Voices break, blood pours, bones stretch, tissues build, strange cells multiply. An in-between thing. Your body can become almost a stranger, but you know in some way that you're going to grow up. As a child, I always knew that David was prettier than I. He was soft and brown with bluest eyes and fine blonde hair, while I was gawky and bony with too many freckles and hair that was mousy brown. But my brother's face was losing that baby look, that shy, smiling wonderment at all the colours in the world. 
His smooth, plump body gradually became pale and thin. His blonde hair turned a greasy brown. He began to get spots. Dealing with my own adolescence was hard enough. Knowing that David was going through the same really threw me. Bombarded with images that reminded me that beauty was the best, I tried hard to ignore how David looked now. David in my mother's arms, with his hands reaching towards the sky. David and myself in identical striped jumpers, picking flowers in our granny's garden. David on a red swing in Butlin, smiling towards the sun. In front of an elephant at the zoo. At the zoo, looking away from the camera while I pose for the lens and pretend to be a tiger. David, myself, our dad, in our old backyard. Our father holds our new baby sister in his arms. David, brown and beautiful, lying in a rock pool on Tremor Beach. David's confirmation with a prayer book in his hands. Family portrait, the baptism of our new little brother. David grimaces at the camera, his eyes half shut. Now you could recognise an almost permanent expression on his face. A confused, muted look. It seemed that no matter how many times his face was washed, there was always sleep stuck to his eyes. To me at the time, it was ugliness. David's schoolmates disturbed me more. Dull-eyed, untidy bodies, noses that were never clean. Fourteen going on fifteen. I only wanted to seek out what I then thought was beautiful in life. I failed to see that David felt similar longings. How could I have thought that he was so different to me? The brother who had been conceived two months after I was born. When my friends would come into the house, his eyes would light up. He would touch Anne's yellow curls or stroke Suzanne's red hair. Then he'd hug them and shout excitedly that he was going to marry Suzanne, going to marry Anne. It was the start of his sexual discovery, touching, recognising beauty and future possibilities. Confusion, sex, David. He couldn't kiss. David wouldn't be able to. He shouldn't do things like that. Didn't you try pushing beyond? Imagining what it would be like if you could joke with David at discos, smoke cigarettes at home in secret together? Did you wish that you could brush the sleep from his eyes? He was almost normal, mildly mentally handicapped. You could almost reach him, almost. Maybe you thought an operation could help, but you couldn't imagine him for what he was. I don't think I was the only one who found David's adolescence disturbing. It seems my whole family tried to deny it. We looked after David, he went to school, was driven home in a special van. Usually he played out in the back garden with my little sister, Claire. David never went out on his own, ever. I never really wanted to go, but when you start bringing home your friends from school and oh, he had them all off and he asked them to go to discos and he could chat them up and he could pick out the nicest one and he could tell her he fancied her or she was nice and... He knew, who, he knew who was nice and who wasn't nice as regard looks and that like, you know. I don't think discos, even if you had to go down uh, with yourself and the girls, I don't think discos would have made any difference to him anyhow, like, you know. Maybe it might have been a, more of a social outlet, like, but then everyone then be worrying about him at the same time, like, what's he doing, how's he getting on, like, you know, you wouldn't be able to go mix around at the same time. David didn't want to go out on his own. I can't remember anyone ever asking him anyone ever letting him do things for himself. The pattern of supervision had carried on from childhood. So he never went to discos or went downtown on a Saturday afternoon. He never went to the cinema or read music magazines. He would just sit for hours in the garden or else my father would bring him out for walks, arguing that I was too ashamed to bring him anywhere. 
Your father argued with you that you were too ashamed to bring him out anywhere. And you were. Idiot. Mongol. Lunatic. Spastic. Fool. Mad. Touched. Touched by the hand of God. Special children, centuries of prejudice and patronage were firmly planted in your mind. Medieval clowns, Victorian asylums, averted eyes, smothered laughter, pity and fear. Cruelty that arose from suspicion and lack of understanding. You didn't want to face up to all of that. There were those scenes from childhood. You weren't seven anymore. You didn't want to be associated in their minds with David. Trying to break with family. You grew further and further apart. Those few months between you seemed to grow into years. And you wouldn't bring him out with you. On Saturday afternoons, I would try hurriedly to leave the house. Goodbye now, I might be back for tea. Where are you going? I'd be asked. Into town with the others, what I usually do. And my father would say, Well, that's fine. Why don't you bring David with you? Because I'm going out with my friends, that's why. I can't bring David down. Why not? He won't do any harm. Then I would sigh and think, He won't do any harm. I know that. I hate this argument. A ritual by now. The same words, same anger. Neither of us ever getting anywhere. I would say aloud, I know he won't be any trouble. It's just, it's just that I don't want to. If I do bring David, oh yes, I'll breeze in, order two coffees. Who might be there? What would he think? The others, he'll start to touch their hair and ask stupid questions. I won't be able to smoke because he'll tell. No way, no way. You will bring your brother downtown. What's he going to do stuck in the house all day? It's not fair. I always have to mind him. It's always the same. Look at him here, stuck with the children. Well, that's not my fault, is it? Why do I get the blame? I made feel the guilt. Getting angrier as more words were exchanged. Until my father would usually say, Get out then. Go out with your friends. They're obviously more important. I would run out of the house, my body trembling, cursing my own selfishness and weakness. After a while, though, relief would get the better of me. Ha! I was free. I didn't care. And it's strange. After seven or eight years, out of all the memories my father could have picked, it was those Saturday afternoon arguments that he chose. You had lots of friends, like your Sinead and all your friends coming in there, four and five and the whole time. And what I was trying to get him to do was have a social outlet, like even of a Saturday afternoon... Uh, give you the money instead of having him drag, uh, dragging around with me, like bring him down to for coffee or just have a social occasion and you were totally embarrassed because uh, at the time you didn't want him to be known as a boyfriend or whatever, like, you know, or whether it was a handicap. I don't know whether you wanted to associate yourself with that or not, like, but when I could see, like, you were at that age, like, where uh, if you were walking over with David, uh, that you didn't want to see him as a boyfriend or whatever, like, you know. Bitter afternoons stamped forever in our minds. Among my family, David became totally cocooned. We, I, had managed to keep him a child. He had never been allowed to grow up. David, tall and skinny, wearing orange armbands, standing in the play pool with my little sister. There I am, sitting in the back garden with my friend Avril after we got our inter results. David on a beach making sandcastles on his own. 
in a green evening dress after being invited to my first Debs. Summertime, little brother and David in front of the lions at the zoo. Summertime, here I am with friends posing in Camden Town, London. August 1989, at a rowdy party with friends celebrating leaving results. More sandcastles on Tremor Beach. Smiling with a bright blue rucksack on my back, leaving home. David was never given the same freedom as I was. I could have offered him some, but I didn't. My parents were scared to allow David his freedom. They had brought him home from Dublin as a baby, his condition described as on the borderline, and they had coped as best they could. Realising his differences, their first instinct, especially my mother's, was to protect him from the harshness and danger of the world. The old vision of the mentally handicapped was what our family knew the image of the eternal child. A shadowed face and side profile, the large curved forehead, the finger in the mouth, and drawn in the background were spirals around the head. Lost, vulnerable, needing to be protected, to be mothered forever. I still think it's a hard world out there, like for ordinary people, without being out there with a handicap trying to cope. So I, his father would have a difficulty he'd be trying to make him more independent. Whereas I tend to soft approach it and cuddle him or mother him or something like, even as regards things that he should do now that he's not doing. I think he doesn't bother with his Chinese laces. He can do a lot of things, but he no time. You don't want to look. You could show him and won't even look at you trying to teach him. He's just not interested in trying laces. Another thing about that is the clock. He can. He's so good at reading. He, well, he is can read. He can even spell a bit. But as regards time. It doesn't interest him whether it's one o'clock or two o'clock. Or he just, and even at school at one stage he learned the clock. Now, basically, he could allow hours, maybe half hours if he's pressed, but he doesn't even look at a clock. Year after year, my mother has protected David with the fiercest of wills, against time, against people, against the outside world. For David is her only child who will never grow up. Apart from any of us, an incredible bond has been forged between them. David has always demanded full attention from my mother and she in return has given it, right down to the most everyday things like listening to him read. Beauty picked up her ears and listened. She didn't know what it was, but she thought it must be a mouse. It wasn't a tiny, it wasn't a tiny bit. It was, it was a tiny bit of stuff falling down the chimney. Beauty passed over to the fire police and listened. Another bit of stuff fell down. This fell down. Beauty squeezed into the fire police itself and looked up the chimney. So now I'm trying to encourage him to read, to take it up as a pastime. That would be good for him. So hopefully at the moment he's getting my attention and he always drives for my attention in particular. Or maybe anybody who will sit and listen to him reading, you know. So, it definitely he demands attention. In everything he does, he likes attention. Maybe just making up for a lot of other things that he hasn't got, or I don't really know. But he likes when he's doing something for someone to watch him doing it, or... To do. But then again, he's capable of a lot more than I give him credit for. I mean, he was off there last last break there 
holidays and come into bed, into the bedroom. Coffee and toast ready for me. Mum, I brought you in your breakfast. I simply I made the coffee there. It was very strong and a bit cold, but everything was on a tray and presented lovely to me. So I thought it was so nice of him, you know. Say when visitors come to the house, he'll get the kettle and he'll make the coffee and he'll even... He remember who takes sugar and who don't take sugar, and he'll do that. Like you know, I, I definitely myself, I, I have over. I even not. Don't, I'll do that, David. No, but he wants that. At this stage, I'm leaving him. Do things that I probably should have left him do long ago. You know. Growing up, growing away, growing apart, movements in a family cycle. Sometimes it seems that David can be the one true constant there, always ready to love and hardly ever question. For him, no glib sentiments, tensions, disloyalties. The last Mother's Day I had presents. He gave the lads to buy a cake for Mum. You know, I like cakes. And the others, I had cards then Mother's Day. And I went in, thanks for the cake, David, into the bedroom. And I said, thanks for the cake, David. Well, where's your card? I have no card, Mum, he said. But I made up a poem for you, he said to me. And I said, what is it? I said, if wishes come true, Mum, you live forever. I'd have brought it up to be true. So I thought it was nice to see anyone ever said to me. The clock moves on. Didn't you wonder what would happen when your parents became old? Who then would look after David? What would happen when he reached 20, 30, 40? Do you see this baby-faced old man sitting in the corner of some house, staring at blank shapes on a wall? The clock need not tick so cruelly anymore. Subtle changes have begun. No more are those with a mental handicap hidden away in shadowed rooms, ageing with their elderly parents. No more are they locked away in wards. No more are they expected to be children forever. My mother realises that wishes don't always come true and David has to be given some responsibility and freedom. Since he was 18, David has been working in Waterford's Brothers of Charity training workshop, carpentry, production line assembly for local factories, general labour. At the moment David is there now, but he's on the very... He's there over a year now, but he's at... Um, just the basics, like packing small light industrial work for one of the big Thai factories, Milton Bradley. So he seems to be quite happy there. And um, he feels independent, loves bringing home his wage packet on a Friday and handing out the wages to me and keeping his own and giving the younger children their pocket money. So he feels very important. Yeah, at times I look at him as he's, he's looking like he's sitting there tired or after holidays. Like I, I like having him here. Then I, I feel lonely when he's going back to work. And I say, David, do you like the work? I would rather be at home. I like my friends. He say I like the work. Sometimes he said, and sometimes I like at home. So I suppose he has his good days and bad days. It is work, but more besides. Like school magnified, it again teaches how to place round pegs in round holes. Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, Dave, how are you? I was working in the Belmont. Then I... Then I... Then I... Then I... Moved... Then I was moved... To Commerce. There's a bloody workshop. Train centre. And I guess I... Lift... To the workshop. There's a bloody... By ambulance. 
by ambulance and we get lunch up there. We're in 12 o'clock. And I start work at 9 o'clock. <laughs> the workshop philosophy is for David to become more independent, to do things away from the presence of this family, to develop his own life, to learn how to tie his own shoelaces, to go downtown alone, to walk to work in the mornings. He still doesn't do any of these things. My parents still remember the helpless baby, the accidents as a child, his sheltered upbringing, even now his naivety and innocence. It's easy to say that people with a mental handicap aren't different, that they should live an independent life, have a job, leave home, fall in love. But how easy is it to forget the fear and embrace the unknown? Some are picked up from the door, like they might have physical handicaps, they might be able as David was able to go to walk or that, but then not good at traffic or being used to being out on his own. So I agreed he went distance, learned that we brought with him a few times, a couple of weeks, and gradually he went on his own and had two kind of, not main roads, but still fairly busy roads to negotiate. So he used to get there maybe a couple of streets away. But the problem was the dogs, as I said before, he had a phobia about dogs, so... A few times, or even things would distract him very easily. A neighbour one time was walking with him and she left him off and said goodbye to him. With her. He didn't forgot his road since then and just kind of stepped under a car, like and just had to pull up in the car. But another example then was um, another time he, there was a dog barking on a corner and he would not pass the dog and the driver had to come looking for him. Or a neighbour had to ask, bring him by. He just froze, absolutely terrified. She had to catch him by the hand and bring him past the dog and then asked um, the man to take in the dog would he until he passed every morning. So recently then he was coping, going anyway, going on. But then another example lately there, which I, I, up around, just a short, fairly short distance away from the house, there was a pack of dogs roaming and greyhounds and all hell broke loose of the dogs. He was petrified and asked someone to bring him past the dogs and they didn't understand what he was saying or they just ignored him and I mean I wasn't there didn't see what happened only for he told me he went they jumped at him the dogs the rope just fighting they weren't going for the David now but he panicked and ran out under a car and the man in the car stopped the car and they got out and called him stupid idiot so that really kind of put me back to square one with him the tension is there the distraction of not knowing what to do the tug between wanting to protect and having to leave go these days, I merely peep over the hedge and look into the garden. My parents and David are what matter now. We just use the word Special Olympics and he has his own friends there, like, you know, and that. And that's basically it. I never use the word handicap to him. I don't think there's any need for it at uh, this particular time, like, you know. The only, the only, the only worry we have, like, I suppose, now at this, this time of our lives, we have to take care of David. But uh, like everybody else in Ireland, I suppose, around the world, like if anything happens, it's what happens to David then. So that, that's basically the problem, like, you know. What's in there then? Letters. Photographs. Playbooks. And who are the photographs of? Myself. And finally, just hope. And that's you. I want you. 
And look at us all. Yeah. Look at us all. His father now tends to have a different outlook on what he should be more independent. It often causes a bit of a row. He leave him do things for himself, leave him go off and do those things. But uh, I think he's not, he, I think he needs protection. Well, let's have a look at the letters, David. Well, you explain the letters. You sit down. They're your letters. What letters? Where are they from? For you. We write letters to each other, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Which is your favourite one? Well, I'd like to see him totally independent, but uh, I, I really don't know. I don't see David ever living on his own and um, cooking on his own. That's just, uh, like, like some of the boys, unless there's a... T of course, he's very young, yes, he's only... He's up there now, up in the workshop, like, and David is one of the youngest up there. He's only 20 years of age. He's just gone up to 21. But some of them are men, total men, like, you know, and David is very, very young now compared to the rest of them. So give him another 10 years. When it when it be thirty or something like that. That's not the that's not the letter. I don't think. It's his. It's his. It's not. It's his. Look. It's not. It's this one. This is. It's really crazy. It's about um. He Connor is doing fine, although he was quite sick last week and is now trying to give up the fags. Yeah, it's 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 carry on. Vanilla and Donal are doing well. We're all looking forward to summer. I can't wait. Can you? Are you going to go on holidays this year? I've decided to go to Kerry for the bank holiday weekend. Should be fun. Why is that? Because I'm going to go with my friends and we're going to stay. Is Anne having good pubs? Well, maybe. Is he drunk? <laughs> Not all the time. Go to the beach as well and go cycling. Isn't that a good idea? Yeah. And I'm living put a little bit. What? Uh, I will not put letter, litter, litter on the ground. Do I ever drop litter? Well, once. No, I didn't. Well. <laughs> when I was small. You live in Lashville. You So did you. Yeah. No. Well, maybe when I was really small, I didn't understand. He doesn't complain, unless he never to anybody else. But to me, at times he'd have his moods. He'd have his moods all right now, and I might say, I wonder, is he happy? But and generally, he's happy. He's very happy, I think. He's an easy-going child and doesn't seem to have any worries, which everyone else has worries, and you'd have worries, and the younger children have worries, but David don't seem to worry. It's probably just... He states that, you know, he doesn't, doesn't worry about things. I don't think he do anyway. Do you remember us living in Larchville? Yeah, um, and I remember I used to have a little, a big tractor. A little what? A big tractor. A big tractor? Yes, I remember that. You were only about three or four and you had a big red tractor. Yeah. Remember you used to go off yeah. in the streets I, I, I with it? I don't know where to be. I You wonder where it is now? Yeah. I'd say it's up in tractor heaven. 
to be out and talking about getting married or anything like that, but uh, uh, it's only something like that they see on the telly or something like that. That wouldn't be just that just, just come into his head, like you know. No, 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 he wouldn't. He'd often say he's going to go off and get married or leave the house and that, but uh, pack his bags and he don't go anywhere, like you know. You gonna sing a song? Hmm. Okay, let's sing. It's one of your favourites, Those Brown Eyes. Yeah? No. No? Why not? Tell me if I am or something. You may be clever. I can play this way. Sing, sing that one. Go on. What? I don't think a mental handicapped child, is, I know how you can gauge a, a mental different level of mental handicap, but no, I mean, he, he would be a loss, I think. His love of people and his love of the family and other things, you know. So I think with it, it's nice even for him to have the family younger going down, so at least there'll be somebody for years, you know, company. And what I often think of my old age, I often say to them, should David buy when they're all gone, I'll have you. We'll have each other. So, you know, he seems happy. David on a beach in some faraway country, at a party with friends, sitting on the sofa the last few days before he leaves home, proudly posing with paintbrush in his own place, with a smiling girl, at another party, laughing with a baby in his arms. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.